Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, February 16th. We begin with the win-win story of a local business, which is a first for North America. We speak with Aiden Mills, CEO of North Star Clean Technologies, who shares details of his business from the positive environmental impact of recycling asphalt roof shingles to the creation of hundreds of jobs in the city of Calgary. We've all heard about the health concerns surrounding vaping, but how can we effectively get the message across to youth who are already hooked on the products? We discuss the issue with Dr. Bab. Salmani from the Health Psychology Lab at Western University. And finally, have you heard about the concept of the 15-minute city? It's community-focused urban planning, promoting walking over driving and retail placement like grocery stores in close proximity. It's an idea that garnered a lot of attention from conspiracy theorists. We find out why from Timothy Caulfield, professor from the Faculty of Law and School of Public Policy at the University of Alberta. North Star Clean Technologies plans to build the first commercial scale asphalt shingle recycling facility for North America right here in Calgary. And the federal government is investing $7 million in the project. Joining us to discuss is Aiden Mills, CEO of North Star Clean Technologies. Good morning to you, Aiden. Good morning. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me on. Thank you for being here. This sounds like a real win for your company and for the environment. So let's break it down first of all. What what North Star Cleaning uh, North Star Clean Technologies does? What does your company do? So we essentially have a pri- proprietary technology that takes an asphalt shingle tile. So as you you know you re-roof your house, you the asphalt shingle tiles come in, come into us. We split the shingle tile up into its individual component parts. And a shingle tile is about 50% aggregate. It's about 25% fiber. If you have an older roof, that fiber will be paper. If you have a newer roof, that will be that fiber will be fiberglass. And 25% uh, 25% asphalt asphalt oil. And our technology splits the tile up into those individual component parts. So part of the government award is obviously, um, you know, for uh, for a circular economy uh, business. And so we take the shingle, we split it up into the individual component parts, and they can go back into into industry um, um, for use uh, in the, the asphalt can be used in paving or flat roofing or shingles. Brilliant, Aiden. Why have we not done this before is my first question. But uh, more so than that, what is happening in the industry? Do those shingles generally, without what you're doing, do they just go to the general landfill? Yes. Yeah, so, so the North America. So, the the first question is why haven't we been doing this before? Is is a really good question. Um, so, so the industry solution today is um, that some areas, and now this is, it's not allowed in every jurisdiction, either in Canada or the U.S. Some areas allow you to take a shingle, grind it up, and put it back into into road mix. But, but, but the figures are astounding. So, if you look at North America. Um, Sorry, let's just look at the U.S. So if you look at the U.S. market, about 17 million tons of shingles come off roofs every year in the U.S. And about 1 million of that gets ground up and put into uh, back into roads. And 16 million tons goes into landfill. Wow. In Canada, 1.5 million tons goes into landfill. And, and just for a bit of context, when you add that together and you use the, you know, approximately 25% of that is oil, that's over 20 million barrels of oil a year goes into landfill because of shingles. Wow. You mentioned that, you know, to a certain extent, there's bits and pieces of uh, reuse in the States. Uh, but this being a first of its kind in North America, a recycling uh, plant like yours, can we compare it to other countries? Are, are other countries in the world ahead of us when it comes to recycling these shingles? 
No, not really. I mean, I mean, we as as part of our as part of our uh, of, as part of our patent process, um, our patent lawyers did a did a global search to see if there's anybody that is deploying technology like ours, and the answer was there isn't. So, so we believe that this is truly our first, uh, and 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 so the real advantage of this is, you know, we're going to head, we're headquartering the company in Calgary, the first scale up facility, commercial f- facility in, is in Calgary, but we have the opportunity to roll out a facility for every city across North America that has more than a million people. That's roughly about the the the, the right kind of volume. And, and, and each so the Calgary facility and each facility after that will enable 40,000 tons of shingles to be taken away from landfill and put into our plant and repurposed back into industry. Speaking with Aiden Mills, Chief Executive Officer, North Star Clean Technologies. Aiden, tell us a little bit about this facility. Where exactly will it be? How big? How many jobs might be created? That sort of thing. Yeah, so it's, it's on about a kind of three and a half to four acre site. It'll be uh, it'll be uh, in the in the Rocky View part of of of, uh, of the on the east side of Calgary, um, kind of four kilometers from the yeah, eastern Calgary landfill and about five kilometers from Shepherd. So so right here in the city, uh, and able to face diversion um, from from all of the city landfills, and probably once uh, fully up and running, as I said, about forty thousand tons of shingles going in a year. Um, and probably in the order of kind of 15, uh, 15 jobs at the facility itself, and then obviously headquarter jobs to, to ramp up as we uh, as we go through the deployment across North America. So, so I, I kind of a great, uh, you know, and, and the the choice of Calgary, you know, our engineering companies here, um, and this is, you know, from our perspective, the, the center of energy transition, and, and out the back end of this plant comes asphalt, which of course. Uh, Alberta knows and loves well as a, a, as a product. Wow, great news for your company, great news for the city and jobs, and obviously great news for the environment. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the uh, your discussion there, Aiden. We appreciate it. Yeah, and look, the only last thing I would say is for, for Calgary is that we were, we'll be starting to collect shingles uh, starting at, uh, you know, kind of in, in, the, in the middle of the summer this year um, and, uh, you know, connect, collecting shingles for, for, for the commissioning of the plant. So if you're a Calgary homeowner and you're thinking about re-roofing your house, please talk to your contractor, not about bringing those shingles to landfill, but by, by bringing those shingles to, to North Star. Excellent. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Aiden. We'll uh, also direct people to northstarcleantech.com. Thanks, Aiden. Exactly. Thank you. Aiden Mills, Chief Executive Officer, North Star Clean Technologies. How concerned should we be about the increase in vaping among young Canadians and what exactly are the health risks? Joining us to talk about it is Babak Salmani, PhD candidate in exercise and health psychology at Western University. Good morning to you, doctors. Thanks so much for your time. Good morning, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. You know, we made it really difficult for people to smoke cigarettes. The price was high. The packages were gross. The pictures on them were ugly. And it's all because we knew and understand the health dangers. And then along came vaping and everybody thought, oh, this is fine. No big deal. What are some of the health risks associated with vaping, particularly for young people, Bevic? Yeah, that's a really important question. And, and you raise a good point with smoking tobacco as well as we see that trend of the decline over the past 60 years. We're starting to see that a little bit with vaping, but it's it's still a work in progress. In terms of negative health effects, uh, we know that it can lead to a pneumorphorax, which is a, a collapsed lung. We know that it can be associated with pneumonias. In some cases, there's evidence showing 
that it may be linked to brain damage uh, with increased use over five or ten years. Um, and as more research continues to come out, we'll understand more of the short-term and long-term effects of it, being it, that it is a relatively new type of device being used uh, specifically in North America, but especially worldwide as well. And uh, for us, as of right now, it's really just taking the next five or ten years to understand really what they are, but we do know that uh, they are associated with some of those severe negative health effects mentioned. Is that part of the issue, uh, Babak, in, this, in the sense that what we know, and you listed some of the things that we know could be health risks, that there's still so much unknown because we've not had 10, 20, 30 years to study it, and so it's hard to you know, really lay down the exact facts to people who want to use vapes, that what their life could look like in 25 years? Yeah, it is, it is a difficult part of, of uh, understanding its true effect, Andy. It's a good question. So we don't know the extent, but we do know that it, that it is associated with negative health effects. The best way to describe it is when you compare it to cigarettes, for example. 60 years ago, we knew that, uh, we knew that it was bad. We knew that um, it could lead to negative health effects. We didn't know the extent of those. Um, in large part because of those large uh, tobacco companies. And it's kind of similar with, with vaping devices and products as well. The biggest difference would be the variety of these vaping devices, not only the device itself, so it can come as a vape mod, a vaporizer, or even a vape pen. So they can vary in size, and they also have different aspects such as flavor, um, which is a big difference and, and a really big issue when it comes to young adults and, and uh, youth that are more susceptible to using these cotton candy, uh, chocolate-type devices, which cigarette smoke just really doesn't have. So, Babak, I mean, are we talking about including cannabis vaping in this discussion, or is it just the e-cigarettes? Because I would imagine it just seems only natural that any time you're inhaling something in, and into your lungs, it's got to be a bad idea. Yeah, exactly. Anytime you inhale anything, whether it be cannabis, uh, cigarette smoke, or vaping, it's always going to have a negative health effect on your lungs and on your pulmonary system. But when regards to the negative health effects associated with e-cigarette vaping and cannabis vaping, they are, there are some differences there. Um, and I can only speak to the e-cigarette vaping because there's not enough research on cannabis vaping itself to really show uh, fruition. But uh, as of right now, like you said, anything that you smoke is going to have a negative health effect. Hopefully, hopefully not, but uh, it's, it's a high chance that it will happen in the short term and it will definitely happen in the long term. Speaking with Dr. Babak Salmani, PhD candidate in exercise and health uh, psychology at Lab Western University. The same way, Babak, that we, that we talk about the dangers of cigarette smoking and the same way we look at, you know, how that has rolled out in society, can we take that model when it comes to educating people about the health risks of vape? Can we take a, a similar path and, and, and use that and adapt it to vaping? Sure. And, and, and Sue mentioned the, the labeling on these types of products when it comes to cigarette smoke. Um, specifically in schools and community centers, a lot of this health information is provided and it's provided very clearly. And that's the direction that we need to take with vaping devices. And part of my research and our research over the past few years was understanding how can we provide this research information so that it's effective at increasing awareness, but more specifically changing behavior when it comes to vaping. So, yeah, providing this information in clinics, community centers, having healthcare professionals provide this research from a, from a trusted source to their patients, and then changing the, 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 the labeling systems of these types of devices and including more information about the negative health effects directly um, are important steps to take in terms of public health Canada and, and what it's going to look like 
over the next 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Agree. And, you know, take down the promotional signs in the 7-Eleven window and, and tuck them behind <laughs> a, a curtain like they have with, done with cigarettes. I'm curious, Bobby, because I don't really know much about vaping, but uh, we had a texter, Cindy, who asked if vapes are filtered like cigarettes. And does it even matter? Yeah, that's a really important question. And that's the issue when it comes to the types of these devices because they're so different. Um, and especially they're, tr- they're starting to evolve and they have evolved over the past five years specifically. But when we talk about what these devices contain, so traditionally they'll have a coil, they'll have the liquid, which contains the flavor and the chemicals, and then they'll have a burner. So when you when you inhale is what happens is the, the coil itself will burn. It will then burn the the liquid, which then is what is inhaled by yourself and the vapor itself is exhaled. And that liquid specifically is what the issue is, right? So it has the flavor, it has the nicotine, which is uh, you know a big issue, obviously, when we're talking about addiction, but it also has those chemicals like lead, it has chromium, nickel even, um, and we know that those are carcinogenic, so we know, that, we know that those can cause cancers, and that's the bigger issue overall. Obviously, we're, we're focusing on the users, and particularly the youth, but the users, uh, you know, part of this, you know, I guess, under the umbrella of vaping and the concerned and, and the players in the game, the user, but then we also have the the retailers again those corner stores we have the manufacturers and we have government how much of a role should government play in the regulation because i i am uh, the guy, kind of guy dr babic that you know i don't want government involved too much but in this case mm-hmm. how much involvement do we need from government to make sure these things are regulated yeah um and i, I would say you know government is a big part of regulation when it comes to public health specifically for maladaptive devices like smoking and, and vaping specifically uh, a large part of that, like you said, is you know increasing the prices of these types of devices, making sure that they're less accessible, especially for young adult populations, as we know it's more popular amongst them, and um, ensuring that the labeling and the information that's provided, not only through public health campaigns, but also through the products themselves, is really emphasized, because you want to make sure that the population that you know may be using these devices is aware of the negative health effects, which right now they're not the perceptions of its harm are really just off-putting um, for example health canada conducted a, a 2019 survey a couple of years ago looking at vapors and non-vapors and found that 60 percent of those uh thought that it was actually less harmful than cigarettes and 64 percent thought that uh it was equally harmful or just didn't know and that's a big issue when it comes to vaping and we saw that issue uh 40 50 years ago with smoking cigarettes as well Thank you so much for your time this morning. Important discussion. Need to keep talking about it. Thanks, Babak. Appreciate it. Definitely. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate it. Babak Salmani, PhD candidate in exercise and health psychology lab at Western University. Edmonton is exploring the concept of the 15-minute city, where all the essential amenities are within a short transit trip, walk, or bike ride. Sounds great, right? Uh, yet, for some reason, the concept is fire up conspiracy theorists on social media. Joining us uh, to help address some of the misinformation is Timothy Caulfield, uh, Professor of Faculty of Law and School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Before we get into what what I find surprising, conspiracy theories and Hmm. controversy surrounding this, can you break down what a 15-minute city is and and what the, the concept would look like? Well, of course, there is some variation, but but the core idea you described it well in the intro. It's to have all the essentials of life relatively close. Uh, it's the goal is to make a city more livable, more more walkable, 
Um, and uh, of course, there's also an environmental component to it. So it really is about uh, about making a city more livable. This is not about, you know, a dystopian future where you are in open air prisons, which is being kind of, you know, put forward by by the conspiracy theorists. Look, I want to off the top say there are reasonable reasons to push back. You know, how much is this going to cost? You know, how are we going to implement it? Is what impact is it going to have on the local economy? There, you know, there are reasonable reasons to to push back against the concept. I, I personally think it's a great idea. But then enter the conspiracy theorists. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about that before we talk about maybe some of the benefits or interest in the concept. But why in the world? Is it just taking a few people on Twitter, for example, like big names that I've seen, just sparking ridiculous conspiracy theories and everybody jumps down and jumps into the rabbit hole? Yeah, I think you're right. And and for me, as someone who studies misinformation and conspiracy theories, that's why I, I'm interested in this idea. It's a very good example of the degree to which conspiracy theories have become part of public discourse uh, today and how fast it happens, you guys. I mean, did you even know about 15-minute conspiracy theories, 15-minute uh, city conspiracy theories even like, you know, three weeks ago? This, this is uh, uh, an idea that really emerged quickly. Uh, it looked like it started, yes, with a famous... Um, uh, conspiracy theorist here from Canada, uh, and the and it was really very much a pushback against you know government overreach. We started to hear it linked to the conspiracy theory of the Great Reset, the idea that there are global uh, elites that are trying to take away our rights, uh, and then the enter the Hunter, Hunger Games right <laughs> language, um, and it's really taken off, and it, it's become one of those conspiracy theories that you know even if you put the facts in front of them, you, no one's suggesting this, no one's <laughs> suggesting that. Doesn't matter. It though. doesn't stop the conspiracy theory. And and it seems that it's centered around you know being you know you're in your you're part of the city or your your community, and you will not be permitted to leave or you might be ticketed when you leave. So can you tell us, do you have any idea how that came up, that we'd be, you know, sequestered into our, our, our hoods and won't be able to leave? You're right. I mean, there was a student group that said, you know, the Edmonton uh, government wants to keep the government of Edmonton, you know, this powerful entity wants to keep you uh, in your district. And 90 percent of your life has to be lived within the district. And they and they put up images of barbed wire. And, you know, I, I think that Oxford uh, in, the, in the UK probably has the most extreme version of this that is being proposed. And so they're trying to control the flow of traffic. And yes, they are proposing fines if you um, you know, go through a certain area, but but we already have all over the world. Calgary has a pedestrian area, right? I wish Edmonton had more pedestrian areas. Uh, you know, we control traffic a whole bit, a whole bunch of ways. You know, the government decides actually where to put roads. Um, you know, that socialist enterprise of building roads with your tax dollars. Uh, they just they already control the flow of traffic. Uh, so, but look, I, I'm not saying there aren't reasons to, you know, question this proposal, but you know, all the conspiracy theories are just way off. It feels like a hunger's hunger games episode or something, doesn't it? Oh, oh, for sure. And people are talking about the hunger games. You see people protesting in the UK with hunger game, uh, hunger game signs. And, um, yeah, it's, it's nowhere near that, that, that kind of concept. The idea of, and there are a lot of, lots of evidence that tell, tell us that, that built environments matter. They really do make a difference and having more walkable cities is a very good idea. 
yeah, a whole bunch of other issues around, you know, how do you get essential services close by? You know, Edmonton really is a big, sprawling city. Is it a realistic proposal for Edmonton? Lots of reasonable things to talk about, but we're not going to have bob barbed wire enclosed districts in Edmonton anytime soon. Can we, Timothy, you kind of blame social media a little bit for this? I mean, you've got people like W. Brett Wilson, who is a big name. He's He holds a, wields a, a you know, a name and some, some power. And then he posts on social media that, you know, into the conspiracy side of things and people start to believe people they see like that on social media. So is this just another example of why we need to really check our facts? Uh, for sure. And, and as you know, he posted a map of Canterbury and said it was Edmonton, yeah. um, you know, and, and it was all cordoned off into these districts. A really good example of how misinformation can spread really, really quickly. And, and of course, the other person is Jordan Peterson, who who was one of the very first people out of the gate, you know, criticizing this. I think this is another really good example of how a bit of misinformation or, or an idea becomes part of a basket of beliefs that you're supposed to believe. And and you see the same people who are, or, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, I apologize, you know, anti-vaxxers, same people who are believing World Economic Forum conspiracy theories uh, are, are the same individuals who are pushing the uh, the 15-minute uh, city often, not always, not often, I want to be careful here, but you get the, these basket of beliefs that you are supposed to adopt. And certainly the, the student group in, at the University of Alberta for example, is a very good example of that. If you go through their feeds, you know, they you, know, you can tick the conspiracy theories as they go through them. Uh, and it's really unfortunate. There's a really interesting study that came out not that long ago that talked about how, you know, you believe one conspiracy, you believe all conspiracy theories. And, and, and it really highlights how challenging public discourse can be in this age of social media. But is, is, is the hunger for conspiracy theories, is the hunger to be part of something and get on board of a cause that might be misdirected, uh, increasing or is it just been more so exposed like have we do you think that do we have as, as a society always had that craving to to hop on and, and attach ourselves to something or is it just more so prevalent now we've always we've always had that tendency and social media and and other and other forces have have supercharged that and again really interesting research has come out just over the past couple months that talked about the degree to which these these communities can supercharge the spread of misinformation. They're, yeah, echo chambers, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what happens, being part of the community, being part of that discourse, feeling part of, of, of a movement becomes more important than, than the facts. And, you know, we see that play out again and again and again. And, and it's really important to, it's a good reminder that we should all, all of us, right, you know, uh, check our, our facts, make sure that we're not getting stuck in an echo chamber and, and reach out for, for those broad perspectives. Great conversation. Thanks so much for your time, Tim. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Timothy Caulfield, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, Professor at the Faculty of Law and School of Public Health at the University of Alberta.